I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Sometime around 200 BC, Romans moved into the Northern Rhone and brought vines with them, making the Rhone Valley one of the oldest places with the French wine heritage. Cote Roti, roughly translating to roasted slopes, receives a lot of sunlight, but also submits to the risk of fog and possible damage by the fierce and relentless Mistral wind. The Mistral wind is a pretty serious force of nature. When you combine the Mistral wind with another feature of the Cote Roti, super steep slopes, you get vineyard work that is difficult and dangerous. The steep areas can also fall prey to erosion, an environmental condition that many people try to fend off with stone walls and terraces. Here you'll find granite and schist soils, which define Cote Roti's two subregions, the Cote Brune and the Cote Blonde. Cote Blonde is generally considered to be more elegant, while the Cote Brune is seen as making more powerfully structured wines. Historically, they've been blended together, but more recently, producers have been bottling single vineyards to great success. In particular, the vineyards of La Landon, La Moline, and La Turque. These vineyards, plus a few others, are colloquially known as the Lalas. Here you'll find Syrah almost exclusively, though producers may blend in up to 20% of Viognier. Cote Roti, in particular, is of great interest because its perception has dramatically changed over the last three decades. In the last 35 years or so, the vineyard plantings have just about doubled, and the prices have increased even more. And this is a good thing. In the past, the wines in general were not receiving enough financial appreciation to cover the extreme vineyard conditions and low yields. As people pay more for wines from the region, producers there can invest more in their wineries, and we've seen this translate to an increase in quality over the last few decades. It's also been interesting to see how the shift towards single vineyard bottling, full of singular terroir expressions and personality, have changed the market for Cote Roti. Stay tuned to hear the details from one producer who has truly led the transformation of this region. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at OffsetPartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an s.com offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand
Philippe Gigal of Gigal and the Northern Rhone. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm very fine. Nice to meet you. Nice to have you here. So your winery was started by your grandfather. Yes, it was started by my grandpa Etienne in 1946 in the place where we live today, that is to say, Empuy, being kind of uh, the capital of the birthplace of the Côte Rôtie. What was your grandfather like? Ah, he was a workaholic. It's a very difficult start from his side. So he started to work at a more than young age. He was eight years old when he first started to work. Eight? Eight. But uh, he discovered uh, the wine world at the age of 14. And 14 is really for him uh, a revelation. That is to say, he went to the village where we live, to Empuy, and he saw these crazy slopes that we have in the northern parts. And uh, rather than being afraid by uh, this amount of work, he said, that's fascinating. Uh, is it something new? And uh, people told him, no, it's uh, the same for the past 2,400 years. He said, okay, well, I'm interested in carrying on this tradition. And, uh, and he started this way. So my grandfather was a vineyard man, which is very important in our family at the beginning. Working in the vineyards, working very hard. So then running uh, you know, a team of uh, people working in the vineyards for uh, a traditional winery, an historical winery in Northern Rhone named Vidal Fleury. Vidal Fleury has been found in 1781, which is a more typical winery for a French winery compared to Gigal, which is a young winery. And um, he then decided that, uh, okay, the vineyards he knew a little bit, so it was time to go to the cellars. So he said his boss, Joseph Villafrey, maybe I could spend some time with the cellars. And he learned some winemaking. He learned how to age the wines, etc. And uh, he became the maître de chais of Villafrey. And uh, eventually, because he was uh, still working very, very hard, he became the general manager of this company. At the time, Villafrey was uh, the biggest winery in the Rhone Valley. But uh, more important, it was the most prestigious of the Rhone Valley. So he had been able to um, work with, uh, you know, interesting appellations such as Charles du Pape, such as Côte Rôti, such as Hermitage, Cournas, etc., etc. Why do you think he started so young? He had no choice. Uh, his, uh, his father passed away when he was two weeks old. He had one brother and one sister that were older than him. But uh, when he turned eight years old, his mother told him, I'm sorry, you're the, you're the youngest, but I see your behavior. I see the way you act and uh, you're the most dynamic. You're the most clever. And I don't have enough money for three kids. So you have to take care of yourself. Uh, it sounds very rude today. It was less rude uh, 100 years ago. And, uh, you know, my grandfather had no choice. So he started to take care of himself at the age of eight. You can imagine the style of man my grandfather was. It was uh, extremely... Uh, Powerful, he was extremely uh, volunteer, and he was doing uh, a lot of things with strength. And he was still alive when you were a young man? Yes, yes. My, my grandpa passed away in 1988. I was 13 years old. So I do remember my grandpa extremely well. Um, my biggest regret is that uh, I had a precise idea of what I wanted to do when I was 13. That is to say, I definitely wanted to be in the wine business and, uh, and work with, with my father. But we never had a chance to talk about the technique together. So uh, this has been done through my father. And I work with my dad every day today. My dad uh, will turn 72 this summer, but is still very active and, you know, work together as a, as a family, which is, which is very, very interesting for me. You know, one of the things that sometimes people tell me is that it's hard to get a lot of experience with wine because you only get one harvest a year. Each year you get one shot and then... 15 years into it, you've only had 15, but your grandfather started at a young age and then also was working in multiple different appellations mm. with different kinds of harvest. So that must have been a lot of experience over... It's a lot of experience. Uh, what I used to say is that uh, starting at 14 years old, my grandfather had the unique opportunity and the unique uh, courage to vinify 67 vintages in his life. And I'm not talking about uh, Southern Hemisphere uh, experiences. It's only in, uh, in the northern room in, in Côte Rôti. If my dad were here today, he would hate me to say it, but uh, he's going to celebrate his 54th uh, vintage this year. And uh, I'm a baby. Uh, that is to say, uh, I started only 20 years ago. So uh, I hope it's the beginning of a long story, but uh, I can definitely have the chance to have my dad next to me uh, with 54 vintages of experience and telling me uh, what he would think and uh, the way he would react, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a, that's a real chance. I think uh, it's a unique opportunity for uh, family businesses to, to work this way. 
Because your dad, Marcel, also started fairly young in terms of vinification. Yes, my, my grandpa was working too hard. And unfortunately, when my dad was uh, 17 years old, that is to say 1961, uh, my grandfather became blind. Um, I have no precise idea to say this in English, but his, uh, his retinas scratches, scratched in both eyes at the same time. Uh, when you have this kind of problem to, today, you go to the hospital, you have a little bit of laser, and it sticks the retinas back, and that's it. Uh, in 61, not many laser, and uh, much more complicated for my grandpa. So uh, my dad had to stop his studies when he was, uh, when he was 17, and he started to run the, the family business at a young age, so in, uh, in 61. It's the same story as my grandpa, if we can say. That is to say, uh, he's a very strong man, you know. When you look, my dad is not especially tall, he's not especially strong. But when you start to talk with him and when you start to ask him questions, he, he, he answers with a, lot of, uh, with a lot of strength. That is to say, um, let's say in my dad's world, there's no gray. It's black or it's white. So uh, I enjoy working with, uh, with my dad because uh, things are always very clear. The winery it started under the family name in 1946. Absolutely. Which is shortly after the conclusion of the war. Definitely. So uh, my grandpa was running Vidal Fury and uh, he left for World War II. It's a funny story uh, that a lot of people forgot, but uh, my grandpa did the war in Tunisia. So North Africa. North Africa, absolutely. And when he came back from the war in, in 46, he, he decided to go and see his boss and say, okay, I'm sorry, but, uh, you know, before I leave for Tunisia, I had uh, an important event, which is the birth of my son, Marcel, in, 19, uh, in 1943. And um, I would really love to share this uh, passion, this dedication I have on wines with my son, maybe one day. So uh, I'm leaving Vidal to found, uh, to found Gigal. It was uh, pure craziness because uh, he was uh, very respected as the general manager of Vidal Fury, and he had a very, very comfortable situation there, and he decided to restart everything from the beginning in, in 46. At a very bad time at the same time, I should say, because um, people were not thinking of drinking expensive wine after the war. They were thinking of uh, finding food to eat. And uh, my grandfather was always told me, you will never, ever imagine how difficult it was to sell a bottle of Côte Rôti. I could sell the Côte du Rhône very well because it was cheap and uh, people could, could afford it. But a bottle of Côte Rôti for uh, maybe five francs at the time was uh, far too expensive. That's probably tough when you talk about the kind of farming that that entails mm -hmm. to work those slopes. Yes, uh, for people that have seen our vineyards in Northern Rhône, they quickly realized that uh, what cost a fortune in, uh, in our wines is not what's around the wine. It's definitely what we put inside the bottle. So the farming of the grapes is completely crazy. We have a vineyard of uh, 65 hectares today. And uh, if I tell you that uh, we use uh, 32 vignerons, 30, 32 people in the vineyards, it, it's a very interesting figure because, uh, you know, when we talk about a Grand Cru in Burgundy, for example, uh, where you also have slopes, probably not as steep as what we have in Northern Rhone, but uh, in Burgundy for Grand Cru, we consider one man for five hectares is, is fine. In our place, one man for two hectares is uh, a very, very, very strong work and hard work. So your family ended up buying Vidal Fleury, which your grandfather had worked at. And yes. how did that happen and when? Very, uh, very simply, my grandfather did uh, an outstanding work for Vidal Fleury and... Uh, even if uh, Joseph Villafri has probably been very sad when my grandfather left, uh, I think he was, he's been also very grateful about the fact that uh, my grandfather pushed Villafri to a very high level. Uh, he passed away, Joseph Villafri passed away, and uh, then there's been, you know, general manager for many years, and uh, his daughter, who was uh, just a little bit younger than my grandfather, and you have to realize that my grandpa entered Villafri was 14, so this young girl was maybe 10 or 11 at the time. In the beginning of the 80s, she came to my grandfather, not to my dad. And she said, you know, Etienne, we know each other very well. And uh, we know how much you've worked for Vidal Fury. And uh, I've seen my sons. I've seen my grandsons. Um, and I asked about the future of Vidal Fury. They all have uh, very 
good jobs, but none of them is really interested in taking over the company. So uh, I consider that straight after the family, you should be the one to take over Vidal Ferry. And uh, there were one condition, which uh, was a very uh, natural condition for us. Uh, Vidal Ferry is a traditional brand. Uh, it's an historical brand. And uh, we don't want to erase or to make a brand found in 1781 disappear. So this is why Vidal Ferry has always been 100% separate from Gigal in terms of winemaking, in terms of uh, wine selections, in terms of distribution as well. We have uh, different, uh, different importers and different uh, distribution in the different countries. But they owned a significant portion of the Cote Rotee vineyard. Yes, uh, they did own uh, about 18 hectares, if I remember well. It would have been complicated and probably technically a mistake to have two teams working the vineyards of Gigal on one side and the vineyards of Villafrey on the other side. So uh, it is true that it is the same team today that is running uh, all the vineyards all together. So your dad is there from the 60s? 61. Mm-hmm. Major purchase with Vidal Fleury in the 1970? Uh, Vidal Fleury, we, we took it over in 84. I'm sorry, precise. 84. Okay, mm-hmm. so that lines right up with uh, the genesis of the Lalas, right? Because 83 was the first one. No. Um, if we talk about the Lalas, the first vintage of La Moulin is dating back 66. Oh, wow, I need to do my homework. <laughs> so uh, Moulin 66, first vintage, it's uh, a vineyard that we took over from another grower. So there were uh, some wines produced in the vineyard of La Moulin before as a single vineyard. It was not called La Moulin. The previous owner was a lady. She was pretty good for the vinifications, but unfortunately she was using uh, 70 years old uh, chestnut barrels for the aging and the wines was simply destroyed by the aging. So we have uh, examples of La Moulin before it was La Moulin and uh, it is very inconsistent from one barrel to another. You have uh, very different uh, very different wines. Um, the second uh, La, if we can say, is La London. It's a very sentimental wine for me because it's a, it's a vineyard that my dad physically planted to celebrate the birth of the new baby in the family. Who's that? <laughs> so um, he planted uh, La London in 1975, in January 1975. And um, the first vintage of La London is 78. And uh, then, uh, you're absolutely right, La Turque is a mixed story with Vidal Ferry. Because uh, when we did the deal with the Vidal family, uh, Mrs. Vidal said to my grandfather, Etienne, I would like to do something good for Vidalfari and more important for the appellation of Cotroti. So do you have any idea? And my grandfather told her, I do have a very precise idea. There is one of the best terroir in Cotroti that has been abandoned, that people stopped working the vineyards in the 30s. And this specific plot is La Turque. So we replanted La Turque together with the Vidal family in the early 80s, in 81 to be precise. And uh, we launched the new La Turque in 1985. But I have to mention new La Turque because there has been a Cotroti La Turque before 1935. So there's been 50 years interruption, production of La Turque between 35 and 85. How would you talk about the differences between the kinds of vineyards that those are? La Moulin, La London, and La Turc. Because it's Cote Roti, and uh, probably because we feel very close from the Burgundians in terms of how complex and how different the, the soils and the terroirs and the habits can be from one place to another, I would say uh, these vineyards are extremely close, geographically speaking, but they are so different in terms of what they technically are. So uh, La Moulin is in the heart of the Côte Blonde in Côte Rôtie. For your record, Côte Blonde is a matter of uh, schists, uh, limestone and silica. So as you can imagine, Syrah growing on limestone is always a very, very delicate, very subtle, very feminine Syrah. If you have the fact that we have the Viognier in Côte Rôtie, and there is 11% of Viognier planted in La Moulin, uh, La Moulin is uh, a very silky expression of a Côte Rôtie. So it's a co-ferment of Syrah and Viognier. Yes, it's always co-fermented because it's a field plant. So uh, at this time of the year, we start to see the first leaves. But during the winter, 
I'm totally unable to tell you where the Viognier is in the parcel. It's completely uh, mixed. La Landonne is a different story. We're a little bit northern. We're in a sector where there is a lot of clay and more important, a lot of iron oxide, a lot of manganese. So this time you have components in the soil that makes that whatever you do, the wine will look bigger, stronger, with more muscles, with more color, with more tannins, etc. So uh, La Landonne is a deep, dark, powerful wine. And there's no Viognier. So it's 100% Syrah wine. Uh, La Turque is very interesting. And uh, if I could say it's very Côte-Rôti because it's a Côte-Brune, but uh, physically speaking, it's uh, very close from the Côte-Blonde. The Côte-Blonde might be 100 meters away, so it's very close. And uh, there is 7% Viognier. So yes, you have uh, iron oxide, you have a little bit of manganese, not a lot, but you have the Viognier that is uh, making this wine, you know, a powerful wine, but uh, with, with finesse and uh, with spices. This, this sector of the Côte Brune is, uh, shows wines that are very spicy, that, has, that have a very good lift. So uh, we have three wines that um, people mention as the Lalas, La Mouline, La Turque, La Landonne. I believe that unfortunately they are rarely tasted next to each other, but uh, when you have this great opportunity, you can really feel the big differences we can have between uh, the silkiness of the Côte Blonde with La Mouline, the spiciness of La Turque, and uh, you know, the depth and the strength of, of La Landonne. I remember once you memorably called La Turque the blondest of the brune. Correct. Perfectly correct. Because it's sort of in between the other yes, two. Yes. Um, it's, it's a sentence that I like to use and uh, that sounds uh, a little bit silly or a little bit simple. But um, when people in area talk about uh, blonde or cold blonde, they have in mind a delicate wine. And when people talk about cold brune, they have in mind a, a powerful wine. And uh, the way I like to talk about these three wines is to say that uh, La Mouline is probably the blondest of the blondes. Uh, La Landonne is uh, probably uh, the brunest of the brune. Whereas La Turque is probably the blondest of the brune because it's a cold brune, but uh, with some elegance, some silkiness closer to the cold blonde. How do they age? Do they age about the same in terms of uh, bottle maturity? The, uh, the answer will be you know, very logical, considering that on the cold blonde, we have more finesse and you know, a higher percentage of Viognier. I would always start to drink La Mouline first. It's difficult to give drinking windows because of the vintages, but uh, I would say at least 15 years. Uh, so even if, uh, in, if it's a, a more difficult vintage or a, a smoother vintage, 15 years is, uh, is a decent time to start drinking La Mouline. Logically, La Turque is following with uh, a bit more strength, a bit more depth. And eventually, La Landonne will always be 10 years more than La Mouline, whatever the vintage is. So La Landonne is the one to think of long term. So is blending Viognier with Syrah something that is traditional to the region, or is that the normal thing to do? It's very traditional. And um, you, you, you used an interesting word, which is blending, but there is no real blend. That is to say, it's a field blend. So uh, outside the moment where you plant the vineyards, you don't really take the decision to say, okay, I'm going to put a little bit of Viognier, because the Viognier has to come from Côte-Rôti. And because it's a field blend, it's uh, definitely something we don't really decide. It's just in the field, it's picked together, it goes into the same fermenting vat, and, and this is it. So I imagine if you're picking it on the same day that the Viognier is pretty ripe then. You're, you're correct. Um, if we only look at the Syrah, so if we decide to pick a Syrah as a ripe Syrah for Northern Rhone, that is to say around 13, 13.5, which is, of course, a different vision from Charles du Pape, where they would pick the Syrah around 14 or more. Um, 13, 13.5 is far enough in Northern Rhone to get a, a perfect phenolic ripeness. As a result, the Viognier, which has been picked before for Condrieux, so uh, at least one week before, will be slightly overripe. So the Viognier, if the Syrah is 13, 13.5, the Viognier will probably be 14 or 14.5. So the Viognier that you pick in Condrieu, that you make into a Condrieu, that you don't blend with Syrah, you pick that actually earlier than you do. Yes, absolutely. And it's Condrieu, so it's just another place. And uh, we're totally dedicated to the Viognier when we work in Condrieu. And uh, of course, we're totally dedicated to the Syrah in Côte-Rôti, even if the Viognier is there. You know, it's part, of the, it's part of the complexity of this appellation. Were there a lot of 100% Syrahs before La Landonne? 
I would say that the historical parts of Côte Rôtie are Côte Blonde and Côte Brune, strictly Côte Blonde and Côte Brune. That is to say, when my grandfather started in 46, um, the vineyard of Côte Rôtie was probably around 40, 45 hectares. That is to say, extremely tiny because of the Philipsic crisis, uh, the First World War, World War II. You know, this has made very, very bad effects to the, the plantations in, in Côte Rôtie. Uh, today, the Appalachian is around 290 hectares. So it's very close to the maximum potential in Côte Rôtie, which is, uh, I think, 300. So uh, it's coming to an end, if we can say. But the fact that, uh, you know, the extensions of Côte Rôtie have been done in the northern part of the Appalachian makes that the Viognier is mostly on the southern parts, that is to say the, the part which is the closest to Condrieu in the south. So uh, it is not wrong to say that uh, the newer vineyards planted on Vernet, Saint-Cyr-sur-Rhône, that is to say the, 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 northern, uh, the northern limits of, uh, of Côte-Rôtie, are almost 100% Syrah. The Viognier would, could hardly be justified with uh, the presence of iron oxide and manganese. You know, it's, it's not exactly the style of... Uh, of soil that is matching well with the Viognier. It sounds like those were all signature efforts of your father in the 60s, in the 70s, in the 80s, a new la-la bottling. Yes, um, 66, it, it's definitely uh, my grandpa and my father together. My grandpa recovered partially uh, a bit of his vision, so uh, they've been working together many years, fortunately, with uh, you know my grandpa not being able to drive, not being able to read, but being able to go to the vineyard. So, uh, you know, La Moulin is a, is a vineyard my grandfather always dreamt of. I told you he was a very strong man. When he arrived in Côte at 14 years old, he had no idea of anything in terms of uh, the quality of the vineyards, the potential of the vineyards. But uh, he saw the vineyard of La Moulin, which is a very impressive vineyard, and uh, he saw a house and he said, uh, if one day I can afford it, I would like to buy this vineyard and I would like to buy this house. Uh, the house is uh, where our offices and cellars are today and the vineyard was La Moulin. So uh, he achieved it in 66 with my dad. Then my dad has uh, had the courage in, uh, in 75 to decide to plant La London. I'm mentioning the word courage because it's a very crazy vineyard. It's 100% steep. So we're talking about 45 degrees. And uh, it was, of course, very, very courageous for someone to decide to replant uh, these, uh, these steep slopes at a time, you know, Côte-Rôtie was not really fashionable. Uh, Latour comes a little bit later on, on uh, a terroir that uh, my grandfather experienced when he was working for Vidal Ferry in the, in the 30s, early 30s. So uh, it's more on the knowledge of my grandfather that uh, we replanted Latour early 80s. Is La Moulin the oldest vines of the three, or have there been replantings amongst the three vineyards? So La Moulin is the oldest vine of the three, but more important, La Moulin is the oldest vineyard in the entire Côte-Rôtie Appellation. So uh, the average age of the vines is La Moulin is 90 years old. Uh, we still have vines dating back 1893 that are the very first replantations after the Philippine crisis. That is to say, it's uh, vines on American rootstock, but it's the very beginning of uh, the grafting, uh, you know, American rootstock system, if we can say. It's an impressive vineyard. You know, when you see these vines that are more than 100 years old, grafted on a poor soil, because the soil is very poor and it's very dry in Côte-Rôtie, people often forget that literally Côte-Rôtie is roasted slope. So uh, it is extreme, extreme temperatures during the, during the summer. It's, uh, it's somehow emotional when you see these, uh, these vines that are very, very different from uh, old vines you can see in other places. You know, I've, uh, I've visited Australia many times. I'm very familiar with the Hill of Grace parcel with the 266 years old Syrah. Uh, it's not the same profile at all. You know, it's probably close to... Um, vineyards that would be uh, 60 or 70 years old in, uh, in Australia because uh, we don't have vigor in our place. It's, uh, it's extremely dry and, uh, and poor soils. And maybe some more limestone in the soil than yes, you might find well, in Australia. as well. Mm -hmm. which, which might lead you to maybe even more reduction too because sometimes Syrah is mm -hmm. prone to reduction, right? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So uh, when it is about reduction, um, it's not a real concern for, uh, for a winery and for a family 
because you might know that we have a very uh, typical way to age the wines. That is to say, we are big fans of long-term oak aging. The minimum time we age a Cotroti, this is the Cotroti Brunet Blonde, and we're already talking about 36 months. Uh, then we have the Cotroti Chateau d'Ampuy for 38 months in New York and the, the single vineyards for 40, 42 months in, in New York. So it's very long time in oak. Do the tannins read differently when you have Viognier inside the wine as opposed to straight Syrah? I mean, is it a different way that you have to manage the it's, tannins? Uh, it's uh, a very interesting question. It's a very popular question when I visit Australia because, as you know, uh, a lot of people there are interested in the Shiraz Viognier blend. My answer is, is very logical. Outside the fact that, yes, it's obvious that Viognier can bring an aromatic component to the Syrah, my feeling is that the most, the biggest impact of the Viognier is on the texture of the wine. That is to say, uh, the silkiness that you can have in a wine in Côte Rôti, I think is very much linked to the percentage of, uh, of Viognier. You could expect a wine, uh, and I don't like this word, but it's uh, probably the best word, uh, slightly diluted, but it's not diluted at all. And uh, even in terms of color, it's very surprising. But uh, the fact that there is Viognier is not diluting the color. The color stays very good. It is more stable than sometimes 100% Syrah wine. So uh, it's a very, very complex and interesting uh, blend. When your dad got the vine material for La Landon, where did he source the vine material? Is it clonal? Did he do Massal from the Moulin? We, we're fortunate to have uh, you know, Massal selection, which is, uh, which is very good in most of our vineyards. I am not an anti-clonal selection man like uh, you can find in other regions. My, uh, my only comment would be that uh, it's probably a, a mistake to put all the eggs on the same basket. That is to say... Uh, You've probably heard about uh, the big problem there is in, uh, in the Languedoc and in Southern Rhone with uh, what we call in French le dépérissement de la Syrah. That is to say, we don't know why, but there are vines of Syrah that are dying. And uh, it's really concerning because uh, with the tools and with uh, the knowledge we have in research today, we're searching for five years and we don't know where it's coming from. So... Uh, we don't know if it's a plasmodium. We don't know if it's. We don't know much, except that the latest research show that it's probably the combination of certain rootstocks combined to certain clones that is leading to this uh, natural death of the Syrah vines. What can I say? There are few examples, very few examples of this in Croz Hermitage, but northern Croz Hermitage. We didn't see a single one. So uh, thank God, uh, Massal selection uh, was a good inspiration when we planted these vineyards. And does that problem also affect Viognier or is it just a Syrah No, it's typical to Syrah. Viognier has other problems like, um, if you use the same word, ESCA. Sure. ESCA disease, uh, which could be concerning. We know a little bit of it, about ESCA. There's not many ways to cure it. So we have to do a strong survey of, uh, of ESCA. Uh, it depends on the on the years, and we realized that the climatic conditions can have a strong impact on the ESCA. And uh, there are vintages where there wouldn't be any problem, and vintages where we would lose uh, 3% in a vineyard, which is a lot. Are those vintages with no problems drier vintages? It appears to be the case, absolutely. So you make a significant amount of what is made of Cote Roti. What is the percentage of what you make versus what Cote Roti is? Cote Roti is a tiny appellation. We are historical players in Côte Rôtie. So um, to answer your question, I can say that today on a vineyard which is uh, 290 hectares in total, our own property in Côte Rôtie is 35 hectares. 35 hectares is not an impressive figure, except that it's Côte Rôtie. And um, the figure that not many people have is that these 290 hectares are owned by 130 owners. So it's a lot of very tiny owners uh, that do not have enough surface to make their own wine because, you know, they have a job and it's just a parcel that uh, they inherited from their father, etc., etc. So uh, we buy a lot of grapes in, uh, in Côte Rôtie. So um, we have our own property, 35 hectares. 
which is considered to be gigantic for this appellation. I think uh, the second biggest owner has 11. So it goes from 35 to 11. We buy to more than 70 people, 70 growers in Cotroti. And uh, eventually, to answer your question, we, uh, we vinify every year about one third of the total appellation in Cotroti. And another appellation that you actually make a lot of the total of is Condrio. Condrio, yes. Condrio, uh, Condrio is fascinating because it's Viognier. And uh, Viognier became very popular here in the U.S., in Australia, New Zealand, in South Africa, even Europe, in Italy, in, uh, in Greece. Many people forgot that 45 years ago, so not a very long time ago, there were probably mm, 9 to 11 hectares of Viognier planted on planet Earth. It was the Condrieu Appellation, and that was it. That is to say... Uh, the appellation was becoming smaller and smaller. Not many people were interested in these grapes that had a natural tendency to, you know, degenerate or, or die. There were a normal production of Viognier once every four or five years. Uh, so during many years, the average yield of the appellation has been nine hectoliters per hectare. So it was just uh, miserable and a, a drama for this appellation. It needed people to say, oh no, we cannot leave this. Country exists for 24 centuries and we cannot make the story stop now. So um, a man like Georges Vernet in Condrieu and uh, probably my grandpa and my dad as well uh, decided to push hard to make Condrieu survive and develop. So today Condrieu is uh, 190 hectares. The Viognier 30 years ago traveled south the Rhone Valley, southern part of the Rhone Valley. So first through the Ardèche district, Vin de Pays, the Drôme district, then the, the southern Rhone, the Languedoc, of course. And, um, and there's a funny expression. We used to say that uh, the Viognier is a little bit the Chardonnay of the Rhone Valley today. It's, uh, it's traveling in many different countries and there's a lot of interest in, uh, in the Viognier. The fact that we regrew our own appellation in Condrieu made that since the beginning, we supported the uh, small owners of Condrieu buying their crop every year. And it is true that uh, today we would vinify, I would say around 40%, a bit more than one third of the total production in Condrieu. So uh, if, if Gigal is a little bit known for Cotroti and Condrieu, it's not exactly a, a hazard. What is that vinification like in Condrieu for Gigal? It's a very specific vinification. I have studied in Dijon, so I did my, my technical studies, my enology studies in, in Dijon, and uh, I think there were interesting, uh, interesting skills to bring back from, from Burgundy. And the one I was very interested in, technically speaking, was uh, the pressing, the pressing of, of these musts of, uh, of Condrieu. And um, I'm now going for unclassical press cycles. That is to say, uh, Traditionally, you know, you pick up the grapes, you put them in the press, and uh, two hours and a half after it's done, you have the must, and that's it. I've always been very interested in uh, the low-pressure pressings, and uh, I normally press between five and a half and six hours, so it takes a lot of time. We definitely get the same amount of must, but the quality of the must that we get is completely different from, you know, a traditional cycle. So... Um, it's a matter of spending the nights on the presses. I have big problems to delegate this, so I still spend the night on the presses. Uh, you can imagine that uh, if we bring in the last lots of country at 9 o'clock in the evening, uh, it's six hours after that it's going uh, that the cycle uh, of the press is going to finish. So it's, uh, it's a hard work. But, uh, you know, I feel a big, big difference in the, in the quality of the mess that, uh, that we get, definitely. And what is that difference? I mean, how would it differ than someone else's must? What's you know, uh, the people in Champagne, as uh, I've learned this a, a long time ago, that is to say, uh, between the very first juices, uh, what we could call free-run juice, the, the heart, what we call the cœur de cuvée, uh, the heart of the press, and, you know, the last hour, hour and a half where you're close to two bars pressure, you have very, very, very different kind of, uh, of must. So uh, my idea is to separate all these qualities of must and do things different with them in terms of uh, vinification, in terms of uh, oak treatment, in terms of uh, 
style of uh, style of wines. So micro lots, but not based on the vineyard source, but based on the press. Absolutely, for uh, for the Condrieu, we have you know a Condrieu which is uh, very much terroir driven, and I'm talking about La Dorian, of course. La Dorian, we're going to pick uh, very specific spots, very specific terroirs, such as uh, Colombier, Châtillon. Château de Volant, Coteau de Chéry, Coteau de Vernon to produce the, the Condrieu La Dorian. And uh, we have here a Condrieu that is not a, a classical style Condrieu. Classical style Condrieu is definitely the, the classical Gigal Condrieu. But La Dorian is... The regular uh, Condrieu. Yes, the regular the, Condrieu. The Absolutely. Whereas uh, the La Dorian is a, is a sophisticated Condrieu with probably more aging potential with a different approach in the vinification with the oak, for example, it's vinified in, in New York. So uh, one is uh, the first wine, the, 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 the classical Condrieu is a wine to enjoy anytime, uh, as itself, as an aperitif, before the meal, etc. La Dorian is a food wine, so uh, the balance in the wine is very precise. It demands, it asks for a, uh, an interesting uh, matching with food. So uh, it's two, two very different wines. When I have tried those two wines, what I've seen is the difference is the textural weight, the richness of the wines. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the grape variety that Viognier really reminds me of, besides like Muscat, Traminer kind of family, is mm -hmm. actually Gamay, although that's, of course, a red grape. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that sometimes people do with Gamay, especially in Burgundy, is intercellular fermentation. Have you ever done something like that for Viognier? Have you ever done fermentation inside the berry? Not really. Um, it's, of course, a different process, but um, we've always been big fans of skin contact. And uh, it is almost systematic. The only exceptions will be uh, vintages where uh, the rot pressure is too strong. So in this case, we wouldn't do any skin contact. But, uh, you know, classically, mitochondria has uh, between six and eight hours skin contact. Because um, you mentioned Gavios uh, Traminer, you mentioned Muscat. These grapes have a, a common point with the Condrieu, which is the fact that uh, you find the primary aromas in the berry and in the wine. And uh, this is very unique. You don't have this in the Chardonnay, for example. When you eat a berry of Chardonnay and you drink a wine of Chardonnay, it's completely different. Whereas uh, if you take the Gouvios Traminer, the Muscat, of course, and the Viognier, you, you can find similarities between the, the aromas you have in the berry and the aromas you have in the, in the wine. And uh, the skin contact is, uh, is a good technique, you know, to have a, a migration of these uh, aromas from the skin to the mass of the wine. So again, trying for more texture. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that probably leads better into aging in wood, if you're going to... Absolutely. Uh, fine lees is also uh, interesting. It's probably from the Burgundy school. But uh, yes, I like to, to work uh, with batonnage on the country. Not too much, because... Uh, there are too many examples around the world of a flabby Viognier, Viognier that can be very heavy on the taste buds. So, uh, you know, the malolactic fermentation is, uh, is something interesting. The fact that Viognier has very little acidity could make people think, okay, we should avoid the mallow, we should block the mallow. But in the end, we consider that a Viognier is an aromatic expression first, and if you block the mallow, I think you really avoid a full expression of what the Viognier can be. So it is not the few points of uh, total acidity you will gain stopping the mallow that are the issue. So we always do 100% of, of the mallow. It's very quick because uh, the quantity of malic acid is eventually very limited. And um, yes, it's, uh, it's giving a full expression of the aromas of the Vignet through, uh, through the malolactic. So to preserve acidity, you might pick earlier rather than uh, no mallow. Um, there is little acidity in the country, whatever you do. So most of the white wines have a balance of uh, alcohol and acids. In country, because there is no acidity, I like to say that there's a balance between alcohol, richness, and a word that doesn't mean much, but which is important, minerality. That is to say, the fact that we have granites in Condrieu is extremely important. The fact that uh, Viognier and granite brings a natural freshness to the wine is important, because this is what is going to make the balance in, in Condrieu. 
you know, technically speaking, acidity is low. Uh, what can we do? Okay, we can bottle early. This is what we do. Keep a little bit more carbonic gas in the wine, which is also what we do. But uh, it's limited in the time. So eventually it's more, let's say, the terroir that will bring the balance than, uh, you know, another technique that we would imagine. When I'm reminded by Viognier of Gamay, perhaps what I'm really reminded of is granite in both. Mm -hmm. Granite. That kind of freshness. Absolutely. And how would Marsan and Roussan, which you also work with in other appellations, differ to Viognier? What does the vinification of those white grapes look like? Um, totally different. I could say almost opposite. I mentioned uh, skin contact for Viognier. Ooh, probably a big mistake for the Marsan, the Roussan. Is that true? Oh, yes, because uh, very quickly you see that uh, the, the musk can turn brown be very very fast so uh you know it's not a matter of uh, losing time you have to be very careful with the uh, with the oxygen because of uh of the fact that it turns brown very very quickly and uh, also the fact that working with the lees in country with the viognier is easy to do uh with the marsan with the roussan and i'm talking for example about a famous appellation which is hermitage it can become very tricky uh you probably heard about the fact that uh Hermitage can be reductive and can be oxidative. And um, I think uh, aging on lees... White, white hermitage. White hermitage. Can be both reductive and oxidative, Absolutely, which yeah. is a, a tricky thing to be. It's a tricky thing. Technically <laughs> speaking, it's impossible. Uh, a wine cannot be reductive and oxidative at the same time. Despite the fact that everybody knows this, it is possible to have this impression when you taste a white hermitage. You've probably heard about the fact that uh, many people say, okay, you have to drink white hermitage very young or very old, but uh, there's a period of maybe five, sometimes 10 years where the wine will show very, very blocked, etc. So, uh, you know, with, with the Marsan and the, the Roussan, we try to be uh, very pure, we try to be very clean, so uh, there is no maceration, no skin contact, there is very little contact with the lees, you know, and uh, we try to keep the wines extremely bright. So do you think lees contact plays into that dumb phase of white wines from Marsan and Roussan? Yes, uh, it's an issue we're still trying, so... We've got, of course, a lot of ideas every year, and uh, we're, we're experimenting uh, on this. Um, some growers say we have to hyperoxygenate the must when they're freshly pressed, so that uh, it's avoiding any reduction phase uh, afterwards. Others say no, it's the opposite. You know, we have to preserve uh, it from the oxygen. So, at, at the end, it's complex. What I'd like to talk about is about the Marsan and the Roussan, because we have two grapes, and uh, the combination of these two grapes is very important. So um, my feeling is that Hermitage or Saint-Joseph or Croze Hermitage Blanc is a matter of Marsan first. Roussan is interesting, no doubt. But, you know, I've heard and there's been a fashion for... Uh, high percentage Roussan or 100% Roussan wines sure. in Northern Rhone. There's a famous example. Yes, there are famous examples. Um, my feeling is that it does work extremely well in ripe vintages. But unfortunately, when the vintage is more difficult to ripe, pure Roussan is a disaster. That is to say, we do not have the climate for pure Roussan wines every year. So on ripe years... I love it, no problem. And I could probably, I would be happy to have a 20 or 30% Roussan in my vineyards. But uh, I have only 5% Roussan in my White Hermitage, in my Saint-Joseph Blanc, in my Croze Hermitage. Because uh, I consider that uh, Roussan, in terms of its balance, in terms of its acidity, and in terms of its aromas, is bringing something very interesting to the Hermitage. It could be bigger in ripe years, but you know, I have so many examples of, uh, you know, vintages where the season is late. We have good examples with 2012, 2013, 2014, where the ripeness happened late, you know, that is to say the last days of, uh, of August and September. So we saved uh, these three vintages through the month of September, where the ripeness uh, has been outstanding. And uh, if we bet on the Roussan only, we make a big mistake. 
But I've had Marsan heavy white roans that also went through oxidative shutdown, mm-hmm. like where yeah. then it came back later. Yes, but it's heavy on the Marsan, so it can't just be the. No, it, no, no, no. You know. Not only it's a combination of uh, of many many different factors. My, my comment about the Rusan is uh, very much linked to the North. If you ask me, uh, what is my favorite grape? And if I had to choose one grape between Marsan and Rusan, the North, you have the answer. It would be the Marsan. If you ask me the same question about the Southern Rhone, I have the opposite answer. So uh, I would go 10 times for the Roussan first and uh, the, the Marsan second. Because it's warmer. Because it's warmer. Mm-hmm. You're historically associated with Cote Roti and then Condriou, but you moved into Hermitage and San Joseph in a large way right about the time that you entered the scene at the winery. Is that correct? Um, it's not wrong. Uh, it's uh, a little bit later on. We had a, a fantastic opportunity in 2001. Uh, we took over uh, two interesting estates. Uh, one of them was extremely was extremely prestigious, and I'm uh, I'm talking about the former Jean Louis Grippa estate. Uh, Jean Louis is a fantastic vigneron, and he was uh, owning outstanding vineyards in Saint Joseph. It was extremely well known for Saint Joseph. His nickname in France was uh, the Royce Royce of Saint Joseph. So it was uh, it was uh, you know probably the best uh, the best example of the appellation for Saint Joseph. And uh, he was also uh, owning beautiful vineyards in, in Hermitage, very old vines vineyards. And the same year, we took over the former uh, De Valois estate. De Valois was less known, but uh, it was the second biggest owner in Cotroti. So it did uh, reinforce our vineyards in Cotroti, and it had uh, you know, jewels such as uh, a beautiful parcel in uh, Les Bessards, uh, L'Hermite, uh, Les Greffieux in Hermitage. So uh, definitely... Uh, Two properties that has that have been very important to us. So uh, this is the way we we entered Saint Joseph. We entered Saint Joseph through uh, the biggest door and the best uh, vineyard possible. Uh, we entered Hermitage through a very prestigious Lyodi, and uh, this is how uh, it gave birth to the ex voto, uh, white and red. And the same year uh, we started with uh, we started with Croz Hermitage. So it sounds. Uh, very bizarre today, but uh, our first uh, vintage of Gigal Croze Hermitage has been 1999 because of De Valois that owned vineyards and uh, that had stocks of 99. So we started to uh, to produce some Croze Hermitage in 99. And I have to say that uh, today it is the second most important wine in volume at the winery. So it became a huge success. How are those terroirs different from a grower's perspective and especially in relation to Syrah? How is... Hermitage, Croze Hermitage, and San Joseph, how are they different than Caroti? My first comment would be that uh, San Joseph is on the right bank, like Cotroti. So there is a finesse and an elegance in San Joseph that could be compared to Cotroti, especially if you start to compare San Joseph with Croze Hermitage. The fact that both Hermitage and Croze Hermitage are on the left bank that is to say, south-southwest exposure compared to south-southeast exposure on the right bank makes that uh, it's probably linked to the ripening of the Syrah and the terroir, of course. But uh, the wines always show more muscles, more tannins, more structure. You know, comparing an Hermitage with a Cotroti is something difficult. But uh, Cotroti would be a smart lady. And uh, Hermitage would be a young, strong guy. And um, it is more or less the same thing you could say about Saint-Joseph and Croze Hermitage. Croze Hermitage can be very complex because uh, it's a very large appellation. It's the largest appellation in the Northern Rhone. And uh, being newcomers in the appellation in 1999 we said that uh, we probably needed to do something different from what was on the market. And um, if you study the Croze Hermitage appellation, you quickly realize that uh, probably 70-75% of the appellation is the plein de chassis. That is to say, it's a flat part where you can use machines. And the style of the wines uh, from the plein de chassis is a very fruity, very forward Croze Hermitage. Uh, there are other villages, such as uh, the village of Croze Hermitage, the village of Larnage, Gervan, Mercurol, that are uh, steep vineyards, as steep as Cotroti or Hermitage, 
um, where you have more dry extract in the wines, a bit more concentration, a bit more depth. And uh, this is uh, this second choice that is very, uh, I would say, uh, very normal for uh, for the Gigal style that that we've chosen. So, um, you know, I used to say that when people are searching for uh, easy drinking Croix Hermitage, they shouldn't go to to our place because uh, we have a, a Croix Hermitage that are expressing uh, through uh, the northern Syrah uh, specificities, such as uh, the white pepper, you know, such as uh, tannins that are probably more rustic than the plein de chassine than the easy drinking drinking style so uh you know we had to come with a with a defense we did it this way and i have to say that it's a big success so on one side of the river you have essentially four single vineyard wines in red you have the three la la wines and then you have the vinda hospice and san joseph absolutely on the other side of the river you make amortage from a number of different sites and in different bottlings the ex voto is a number of different sites and then the straight amortage is a number of different sites what's the the difference there for you as a winemaker doing mm. blends of different sites versus single vineyard parcels? You know, if we want to restrict to Hermitage, that is to say, if we avoid Côte-Roti, Saint-Joseph, and talk only about Hermitage, I would easily say that there are two schools. One school is to say that Hermitage is, by essence, a complex appellation. That is to say, if I talk about Côte Rôti, I mentioned the Côte Blonde, I mentioned the Côte Brune, and this is it. So it's quite a clear picture. If I have to talk about the terroir in Hermitage, it's not the terroir, it's the terroirs of Hermitage. So we're talking about 12 different sectors in Hermitage that are completely different from the pebbles to the granite to the clay to, okay, many, many, it's a, it's a mosaic. The vineyard of Hermitage is a, is a mosaic of terroirs. Um, the two schools are... People say, some people say, because of this complexity, the perfect hermitage has to be a combination of different terroirs. Because if you grow on granite, you have one aspect. If you grow on limestone, you have another one. If you grow on pebbles, you have a third one. So a perfect hermitage has to be a perfect matching or perfect blend of the different terroirs. This school is the Shav school. Uh, complementary. Another school uh, that I respect is the Chapoutier school. Uh, that is to say, uh, Michel Chapoutier would say, if we want to show a true Hermitage from Lebesa, we have to show a picture of the terroir in Lebesa. If we want to show a picture of Léméal, it's a different picture, etc., etc. So uh, it's a complex way to approach the appellation, but both ways are very possible, and I respect both. Our vision of Hermitage is more on the Chave way. That is to say, we consider that uh, there are so many differences between the different sectors in Hermitage that, uh, for us, the best expression is a blended, blended Hermitage. When you do different parcels, what are some of the characteristics that you receive from Syrah on sand, Syrah on limestone, Syrah on gravel, Syrah on pebbles, Syrah on granite. How are those different? In a more general sense, how are they different? You know, if we talk about the philosophy, and uh, typically a gigal philosophy, we work approximately opposite to Bordeaux. That is to say, uh, the Bordelais have had a lot of work in the past month in order to be ready for the on-primer tasting, blending, what would be appropriate. So uh, very soon, in January, February, uh, they blend what is going to be the Grand Vin, the Second Vin, the Troisième Vin sometimes. We have a very different vision. We consider that we have to learn still from every place and every vineyard. So we enjoy vinifying all these characteristics, all these terroirs separately. What is rare is that we also enjoy to age them separately. And to answer your questions, if you ask me about uh, my Cotroti Brunet Blonde 2012, I can tell you it's not been blended yet. And I have probably uh, 53 different uh, Cotroti Brunet Blonde 2012 right now. So um, my feeling is that we learn every year. We have different characteristics every year. The terroir will be the same, but uh, the vintage is also very important in, uh, in the old world wines. And uh, yes, I'm not going to do the same thing 
with the same towers every year in terms of rackings, for example, in terms of uh, uh, management with the oxygens, et cetera, et cetera. Now, you mentioned batonnage for whites. Do you do batonnage for Syrah? Do you ever stir the leaves of the Syrah? No, we don't. Um, we've studied it, of course. We've experimented it. Uh, once again, having spent time in Burgundy, uh, it's very popular to do uh, the batonnage uh, on the, with the leaves in, uh, in Burgundy. The fact that we age the wines very, very long makes that uh, we've got a natural stability of the wine that is obtained through the time. And um, Burgundian also say that the batonnage is more or less feeding the wine. And uh, we don't really need it. We don't really need it. Um, I am a little bit afraid by uh, the fact that we would keep the wines on lease too long because we age uh, a minimum of 36 months. And to ensure this long aging, I am a big fan of uh, turning the barrels on the side, you know. I don't like the barrels to stay topped up every week. I like straight after the mallow, I, I like to be able to, you know, turn the barrel on the side the way it's been historically done in Bordeaux in order to have uh, uh, an aging where there is very little contact with the, with the oxygen. So it avoids, you know, the, the presence of leaves. What have been some of the vintages that have stood out in your own mind, either because they were easy or because they were challenging or because they were surprised or because you learned something from you them? You know, uh, if we talk about the recent vintages, I can say that uh, 2010 is an interesting vintage. It's an interesting vintage because the message is very clear. Bordeaux 2010 is outstanding. Burgundy 2010 is outstanding. Rhone 2010 is truly outstanding. So uh, we have a vintage 2010, which is very clear. I love these wines, but never forget that it is big wines. That is to say, people tend to drink them slightly too early. My wife and I became parents in 2010. Congratulations. Was, thank you. It was a, it was a perfect vintage to become, uh, to become a father because uh, I am sure that I have wines of Cote Rotti in 2010 that will uh, be ready to open for the weddings of, uh, of, uh, of my boys. I have twin boys. <laughs> so um, 2009 is another remarkable vintage, but for totally different reasons. It was a very warm year, and you have uh, such a fruit, such a concentration, such a richness in the 2009s that is... Uh, I used to say they are very sexy wines. It's very difficult to resist opening 2009 today because they taste so good. Uh, they will age, but uh, it is more flexible in terms of uh, opening uh, opening uh, window. Uh, 2008 is a challenging vintage, but I love the 08s because it was too easy to consider that 2008 was bad in the Southern Rhone, which is true, and... Uh, Probably the Northern Rhone were the same. What people forgot is that um, from Côte-Rôti to go to Châteauneuf-du-Pape, it's going to take two hours to drive there. And uh, from Côte-Rôti to go to Beaune in Burgundy, it's going to take two hours as well. If you talk with Burgundy in 2008, they're going to tell you, we have a fantastic vintage. If you take to people in Châteauneuf-du-Pape in 2008, most of them will tell you it's a miserable vintage. So uh, my feeling is uh, very much in the middle. It's definitely not a miserable vintage like many people thought. We're in the Rhone Valley, okay, but uh, it's two hours away. So uh, there's a difference in the climates, there's a difference in the terroir, of course. We have steep vineyards, so uh, water rising was an issue in the south. We would never have uh, floating in the northern Rhone because the vineyards are very steep. So uh, it's a challenging vintage, but interesting vintage. Outside this, I could mention 05, of course, but 05 should be forgotten because it's huge tannins. Uh, I'm in love with the O3s, with, uh, let's say, the ripeness of the O3s. It's definitely not a classical vintage, but uh, the wines are extremely charming. And then I would probably jump to 99, which was a splendid vintage in Northern Rhone, uh, especially in Côte Rôti. We have uh, Côte Rôti 99s that are, that are superb. And what are some of your favorite vintages from Marcel's younger days? It's going to sound very classic, but, um, you know, I experienced some uh, Côte Rôti 61 from uh, the property. It's, uh, it's truly outstanding. Uh, the 69 is a truly great vintage. Uh, I was born in 75, 
well, forget it. <laughs> <laughs> good year for Bordeaux. <laughs> um, it's supposed to be a good year in Bordeaux. Um, um, I love the 78 and 79 that are uh, you know, truly great examples of what the Rhone can show in the best vintages. Then it probably jumps to 82. Uh, it's followed by 85. And then we have a very impressive lineup of 88, 89, 90, and 91 in Cotroti. So 91 is surprising because uh, Burgundy is more than difficult. Bodo is uh, extremely weird. And 91, we just had an outstanding vintage in Cotroti. So um, yeah, if you find the 91s today, they are just drinking perfectly. What might be next for Gigal in the future? Mm. We've got plenty, plenty, plenty of, uh, of ideas. What I could say is that one of the most asked questions is, when do we see Gigal uh, in California? When do we see Gigal in Australia? When do we see Gigal in South Africa? Uh, my answer is very clear and very straightforward. Never say never. Uh, I've visited California many times. I love California. I've uh, visited Australia many times. It's uh, an interesting country. And uh, there are many places around the world where you can make great wines. But people forget that the Rhone Valley is a huge region. So um, today, we produce more or less 7 million bottles every year. Some people can say, wow, that's a lot. Uh, most of the time, Australian people or Chilean people say, wow, that's very little. Because uh, you're very well distributed, you're in the best places, the best restaurant, etc. The truth is probably between these two reactions. But the most important figures is that today, Gigal represents uh, around 1.4% of the wines that are produced in the Rhone Valley. That is to say, it is very tiny. So if you ask me about my future, my future is probably 1.5, 1.6 or 1.7%. I have absolutely no wish or no desire to represent 7 or 10% of the Rhone Valley because uh, it wouldn't be you know, what, I, what I want to do. It wouldn't be the quality that I want to do. But uh, you know, an increase of 0.2, 0.3% is a very significant increase. Being able to stay with uh, the same level of quality, with the same image, with the same uh, interest by the customers, the same recognition as well. So uh, I am convinced that before going elsewhere, we have a very bright future in the Rhone Valley. Philippe Gigal, the third generation of three very bright futures. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you very much. It was a great pleasure to be with you. Philippe Gigal of Gigal. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.